been probably at least six, seven years maybe since you were here the last time. But uh, anyway, uh, some of us have known Tom for quite a few years. Uh, not that uh, got to see him a lot of times, but uh, we certainly uh, knew of his influence. And I first met Tom up at uh, Rock River Christian Camp about 40 years ago. And uh, so that tells us that uh, we're all getting a little older, right, Tom? Uh. Anyway, Tom spent uh, like 30 years as dean of students at uh, Lincoln Christian University and also taught there, and uh, he presented a a tremendous uh, program, I'll call it, this morning uh, regarding a book that he's written called uh, Judas and the Criminal Mind. And uh, Tom has uh, can tell us a little more about his background uh, that makes him uh, qualified to, to uh, write that book and uh, to present it this morning. But if you weren't here for Sunday school, you missed uh, you missed a lot. So anyway, Tom, we're glad that uh, you're here, and we look forward to your message. Thank you. <clears throat> My wife, <clears throat> Janet. <clears throat> is not with me this morning, and um, we have some signals that she gives me. Uh, When I'm too loud, I get this signal, and when I'm too long, I get this signal. Wayne Smith, uh, Southland Church in Lexington, Kentucky, tells about a guest speaker they had there in in, uh, Lexington. They couldn't get him stopped. He just went on and on and on. One long service, and the fellow got up to leave, and a deacon stopped him at the back, and asked him, well, where are you going? The fellow said, well, I'm going out and get a haircut. He said, well, why didn't you get one before you came? He said, I didn't need one before I came. <clears throat> I shall uh, try and exercise restraint this morning. <clears throat> I've entitled this message, The Undying Fire. And for a text, I'm taking you back to chapter 3 in the book of Exodus, uh, an account in the story of Moses. Chapter 3, Exodus, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place whereon you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Exodus 3 is the story of a very old man who is probably not a very likely choice to lead the massive exodus and free people from underneath the bonds and heels of the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. 
It's a story of an old man who was not a likely choice, but God chose him in spite of it. He was a shepherd. He was in a foreign land. He was tending sheep that were not his own. In Egypt, his name, actually, in Egyptian, uh, would be the equivalent of our name, Drew. Drew would have been his name. He was drawn out of the bulrushes, and so they called him Drew. He was a prince. He underwent some of the greatest training you could undergo in the world of his day. Trained in Pharaoh's court, he could have been a lawyer. He could have been a teacher. He could have been a soldier. He could have been a green beret. He was highly skilled, and for 40 years, he was among his people growing up in Egypt. And then the next 40 years finds him in the land of Midian. Far away, another reason uh, why something spectacular is needed to count for this man turning his entire life around from being a shepherd in tents in a foreign land to a mighty lawgiver and deliverer prophet of the children of Israel. Not very many men in the twilight years of their lives are called to lead revolutions. I don't expect me to be called to lead a revolution at my stage in life. My grandfather, my grandfather was a blacksmith and enlisted in the army in World War II in the infantry. He fought in Europe, returned to America on board a minesweeper, and became a foreman for Firestone Tire and Rubber Company in Des Moines, Iowa. As a teenage boy, I used to go over. <clears throat> we lived on 53rd Street. My grandparents lived on 61st. I go over there to mow their grass. I remember going into the living room and seeing my grandfather asleep in the rocking chair in the living room with his Bible open across his chest. As a young teenage kid, that had a profound impression on me of the heritage of the lineage that my grandfather unintentionally was passing on down even to me. But he was old. He was an elder at our church, but he wouldn't have been called to lead a revolution. And furthermore, Moses had tried once and he had failed. Back in Egypt, you know, he had murdered, actually, one of the taskmasters who was abusing one of his own people. Um, while later, two of his own people were arguing, and he attempted to arbitrate in their argument, and one of them turned to him and said, Well, who do you think you are? Who made you a ruler over us? What are you going to do, kill one of us like you killed the Egyptian? And then he knew the secret was out. His life would be in danger, and that's when he fled, 40 years of age, to the land of Midian. And <clears throat> and there he began tending sheep. This is what I call the burden of the cross. When you have given some of your best energies to the people of God, you've poured some of the best strength you have and invested it in the work of the Lord in a place like this, and then have people turn on you and criticize and judge and condemn you and slander your name and your family's name, that's the burden of the cross. When Jesus had poured out his life, given his best energies to his people, 
and had them turn and cry, crucify him. <clears throat> I remember walking into one of our dormitory uh, rooms, a young man. It was, this was back when these posters were popular, and this particular poster showed a professional football player who in exasperation was tearing off his helmet and throwing it on the ground and exclaiming, I quit. But down in the corner, silhouetted against the black sky, was the cross of Jesus Christ. And under it were the simple words, I didn't. I have a poem. It's uh, my favorite poem by Rudyard Kipling. It's a poem entitled, If. It's a father counseling his young son on encountering and dealing with all the vicissitudes of life, the highs and the lows, how to be a man. It's simply entitled, If, and it goes something like this. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can um, see the truths you've spoken twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or see the things you gave your life to broken and stoop to build them up with worn out tools. Then it concludes with, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, then yours is the earth and everything that's in it and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. But those particular lines, if you can see the things you gave your life to broken and not quit and not give up, not throw in the towel, but turn to build them up with worn out tools. My my wife's uh, grandfather owned a farm down in southern Illinois, right on Highway 40 between um, Terre Haute and St. Louis. And... um, uh, his son, my wife's father, Forrest, was just a young boy who recalled during the Depression when they were ready to take the hogs to market. The hogs caught a disease and they had to kill all the hogs, lost the whole flock, the whole herd. That very same year, their barn caught fire and burned. That very same year that the hogs got the disease, the barn burned, their house caught fire and burned to the ground. And my father-in-law said, as a young boy, I remember standing between my father and my mother, watching the house burn. And I remember my mother crying, Minnie, and crying, what are we going to do? What will we do? And my father, he said, well, Minnie, you remember back in the old school days when we would have a problem on a slate and we'd get it messed up and we'd just have to wipe the slate clean and start all over. That's what we're going to do. And my father says, how do you put a man like that down when it looks like he's lost everything in the world and he's still ready to go and pick it up and start with almost nothing? I was teaching a class years ago a Bible class, and a, a verse jumped out at me. I'd never noticed this verse before because I hadn't preached much from the book of Habakkuk. I haven't ever heard, I don't think, a sermon preached from the book of Habakkuk. But this verse at the end of that little 
um, book of only about three chapters are these words. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, absolutely everything in the world is gone. He has nothing left. And then he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Where? Do you get a heart like that? If you happen to have an NIV study Bible, look at the bottom footnote of that verse, and it says one of the most powerful statements of faith in the entire Bible. I had never noticed it before. A powerful statement of never giving up. Moses had escaped to the land of Midian, Arabia. This is modern Saudi Arabia. He was comfortable. He was safe. He was far away from the enemy. He had a nice cabin to live in. He had a good job. He had a recreational vehicle. He had everything going for him. He he could retire in leisure. The fire in Moses had gone out. Several years ago, I attended a conference in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, the main speaker there was the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, and he said, uh, the students of Asbury will not need to record in their journals or their diary the events of this past week on campus. He said, we had a chapel experience they will never forget as long as they live. The speaker, he said, in our chapel was a Christian, a Romanian Christian preacher, minister, who had been arrested by the communist government of Romania. And for weeks and weeks and months on end, he was interrogated and punished and tortured. Finally, he said he came to the point where he said, I can't take any more. And strangely enough, he said at that moment, there was a voice in my head that said, read. And he said, I thought that was kind of stupid because they burned all my books except for two. And he said, I had a book there by E. Stanley Jones entitled Abundant Living. And in that book was a chapter entitled Life in the Cross. And in that chapter, it described how Jesus Christ took all the pain and the suffering and the humiliation of the cross and the world and he embraced it. He said, I went out to my interrogators the next morning, and I said to them, you have your ultimate weapon, but I have mine. He said, your ultimate weapon is to kill me, but my ultimate weapon is to die. Because if you kill me, my recorded sermons are going to be played over and over and over again by Christian people all across Romania. He said he learned after that that the news went through the underground. The pastor wants to be a martyr. Well, we're not stupid. We're not going to kill him. And they set him free. And he said he stepped out into the sunlight of freedom And the words came to him, he who saves his life will lose it. 
But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There was a voice in the bush that cried out, Moses, Moses. <clears throat> there was a song. Um, it was a Golden Dove Award song uh, for the best religious album of the year a few years ago. And it was entitled, God Will Make a Way. You probably sung it here before. Some of you are probably familiar with it. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way for me. He will be my guide. Hold me closely to his side. With love and strength for each new day, God will make a way. The text says, he turned aside to see. I will turn aside to see why this bush is burning but not consumed. He wasn't too busy. He wasn't too preoccupied. He wasn't too consumed with his own selfish interest to take time out to check this out. He turned aside to see. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I think, has picked up on that very moment in a poem she wrote, Earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush aflame with God. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest stand around and pick blackberries. Do you get it? Earth is crammed with heaven. Every common bush and flower and tree and blade of grass screeps, screams with the presence and the power of a mighty creator God. Only he who sees takes off his shoes in awe and wonder. The rest pick blackberries. He had a lot of self-doubts, Moses did. Well, he said, I'm not a very good speaker. He said, well, what if they don't trust me? And then he said, who shall I say sent me? Years ago, I preached a sermon to our college freshmen at Freshman Orientation. I entitled, Grasshoppers in the Land of Giants. I took my text from Numbers 13. Of the 12 spies who went to spy on Canaan, 12 were bad, or 10 were bad and 2 were good. Some of you sang it, didn't you? And the two good ones were Joshua and Caleb. And the 10 said, there's no way we can take this land. Their walls are too big, their fortifications too formidable, they're too powerful, they're too skilled in warfare, their soldiers are armed to the teeth, and besides that, they look like giants, and we seem like grasshoppers. Have you ever felt like a grasshopper? I'm telling you, I have. And Joshua said, but if God is with us, that's the first time that phrase appears in the Bible, Immanuel. God with us. If God is with us, he says, they will be bread for us. This will be a piece of cake. If God is with us. And so God says, Moses, you go back and you tell them, Yahweh, I am, has sent you. The gods of Egypt are not, but I am. They do not even exist. But I am. I am has sent you. 
Hebrews 11.24 says, By faith Moses, when he was come of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the wealth of Egypt. By faith, chapter 11, Hebrews, the faith chapter, by faith he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king because he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Have you seen him? You can endure if you've seen him. He endured. Misunderstood, but he endured. Criticized unjustly and unfairly, but he endured. Years went on, 40 years without progress, but he endured. Every man has a pharaoh. Every woman has a pharaoh. What is that? That's whatever it is that stands in your way from really accessing the heavenlies. What is it for you? I, know, I think I know what it is for me, that pharaoh. Nehemiah had his sand ballot. Daniel had his Nebuchadnezzar. And Jesus Christ had his Herod and his Pilate. Everybody has a pharaoh standing in your way. But you can endure if you've seen him who is invisible. By faith. There's a little boy playing with his ball one time. It's a parable. <clears throat> and the ball got away from him across the alleyway under the fence and over into the neighbor's yard. And there were some boys playing in the neighbor's yard, so they thought they'd play keep away. He went over to the fence and he said, hey, come on, you guys, come on, give me back my ball. It's my ball. Nope. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's our ball now. Tough. He went back into the house, his countenance fallen, sad and dejected. His father said, what's the matter, son? Well, the boys next door got my ball and they won't give it back. His father thought he'd teach him a little self-reliance and he said, now, son, I want you to go back over there again and you tell him this time, give me back my ball. He went over to the fence. He said, okay, you guys, give me back my ball. I want my ball. It's my ball. Nope, it's our ball now, tough. This time he went back, tears in his eyes, countenance fallen. Dad, what's the matter, son? Dad, they still won't give me back my ball. Well, son, I want you to do one more thing. I want you to go back over there one more time and ask them to give you back your ball. Only this time, I'm going to go with you. He straightened up his shoulders with confidence he'd never had before. He walked over across the alleyway to the fence. All right, you guys, give me back my ball. And this time you better do it because I brung my daddy with me. If God is with us, they will be bread for us. Christian power is the ability that you and I have to say to the world, get out of our way, because we brung our daddy with us. Oh God, thank you for the faith of Moses.
who through trials we can only imagine became a towering figure in the history of Israel and the world. God, help us to be like, be like that, knowing that the Master is at our side. Nothing too formidable, no walls too thick to climb if he is with us. Thank you for the promise that he is with us. In Jesus' name. If you've not accepted Christ as your Savior, invitation time is for you. Wait no longer. Uh, You step forward, come forward here. Name Christ as your Savior. Claim him. You got him forever. He's the only one that can save you. Let's stand together. Shall turn their hearts to the right.